Can anyone guess what this is in the year it was launched? 2002, I think. Mm, a little bit earlier. Yeah, close. It was 97 in July. This campaign was launched when Steve Jobs came back to Apple. Remember, he got fired from Apple, right, in the 80s, and then he came back. And he launched this campaign with an agency, TBW at Chiate. And um, what happened was Apple was like months away from bankruptcy when Steve Jobs came back. That's why they actually got him back, to get back to the essence of what Apple was. Apple was trying to do too many things. And so Steve Jobs threw most of the things off the table and he just came back to the essence of what Apple is. And he launched this campaign about thinking different. It was really a campaign about us about the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the ones that push the human race forward. You know, we wrote books about them, we made movies about them, they inspired us, we even let them lead us. But don't be fooled, these crazy ones, they're all around us, maybe even in this room. You know, as we move from a world of products to services, we're going to need you to think different. As we move from a world of ownership to access, we're going to need you to think different. And as we move from a world of scarcity, into all of, of abundance, we're going to need you to think different because that's what technology does. It turns scarcity into abundance. I just said products to services. Can anyone give me an example of what that would look like? Spotify example. Perfect. Who here has Spotify? It's everyone, huh? Everyone. So you used to go and buy a CD for, I don't know, 20 euros. And now you just own 40, you, you get access to 40 million songs for 10 bucks a month. What about products, um, ownership to access? Sort of the same, the same thing, but just a different example. Yeah, Airbnb. Instead of owning a house, you just rent a room. You access a room, you access shelter. And Uber, instead of owning a car, you access mobility. What about scarcity to abundance? Think of energy, for example. So there's enough solar power that hits the Earth's surface in one hour to power our global energy needs for a whole year. The problem isn't energy. The problem is access to energy. And technology solves that. For example, solar panels. They give you access to the energy that's already there. Desalination plants for clean water. Most of the Earth's covered in water. It's plenty of water. It's just accessing clean water. So desalination plants, it's a technology to extract um, the salt from water so you can, we can drink it. But also the internet. What does the internet do at its core? In one word, can someone describe the internet? Access. Access? Connection. Connection? Jeez, you guys are, are on the ball. That's pretty good. Connection is the word I often use. Access, access is often one way. Connection is two ways. So the internet is a connection machine. It connects us to each other, but it also connects information, connects devices, it connects things. And w often people are behind those things. So the internet is a connection machine. What it does is copy things. That's what happens when you get into a digital ecosystem. You create copies, and that gives it ex exponential nature. So for the next, well, I usually say 20, 25 minutes, but here I'll say for the next couple of hours, we'll, um, We'll follow in the footsteps of David Bowie, who was quite the entrepreneur. He formed one of the first ISPs back in the early 90s. And he said, in many interviews, you can go back and look at them on YouTube, 
that artists would be born and bred on the internet, while most people didn't even know what the internet was. And he was famous for this quote, the future belongs to those who hear it coming. Because you see, the future, it hasn't been written yet. And we have to listen for it and observe it. So what you do, you listen for the science, but you observe it. For example, if you look at China, they're much more ahead with us than us uh, as far as people are adopting technologies. People are adopting technologies in China at a faster rate because things like regulation and, and data security and privacy aren't what they are here. So they, they, they're faster. And also Africa, think of mobile payments. In Africa, you know, you don't trust the banks. So you do mobile payments between each other. So by looking over there, you can see how people are gonna adopt technologies, how people are gonna adopt software, and you can bring it back and often leapfrog over technology. So this is last year at Savage Marketing, one of the digital marketing conferences in Amsterdam. This is the CEO of Adblock Plus, <coughs> a message supported by DRB. We messed up. We lost track of user experience. And it's because of this. You know, the best minds of our generation are trying to figure out how to get people to click more ads. Now, it's the Googles. It's the Facebooks. But it's also us as a community, the marketers, soon you guys trying to get people to engage and click ads because that's what drives businesses these days. Who knows who this is down the corner? Elon Musk, probably the most celebrated entrepreneur today. I've been following like the, the launch of the heavy and he's put a, like, a car up in space and people are following it around the, the solar system now. Crazy. It's expected to you know, crash on the earth maybe in the next, um, I don't know, 40,000 years or so anyway. But while Elon Musk, you know, is re redefining mobility with Tesla, SpaceX, the Boring Company, Hyperloop, redefining energy with Gigafactory, SolarCity, and even redefining what it means to be human with Neuralink, connecting our brains to the internet through brain-machine interfaces, trying to make it smarter. The best minds of our generation are trying to figure out how to get people to click more ads. It's a quote from Jeff Hammerbacker, an ex-Facebook ex, uh, engineer who is a wizard at machine learning and AI, and now he's sort of left Facebook and now he's trying to cure cancer with, with all of his talents. But you see, in a mobile environment, the only ads people want to see are the ads they would miss if they were not there. Think about that for a second. On a mobile phone, we don't want ads. We only want the ads we would miss if they were not there, the ads that actually help us do what we need to do. The meaningful ads, the good ads. And anyone know who this is? Madman. No. Mad Don Draper. It's a, if you want to get into marketing, it's a good series. It's on Netflix. You can watch it. Mad Men. What's at least the first few season, seasons? It's actually quite funny and quite insightful. This Mad Men uh, played during the 50s and 60s when everything shifted from radio to television. And one thing you need to understand is that radio, television, outdoor advertising, print, these were all mediums invented by advertisers and marketers to focus attention. They, these are mediums that focus attention, bring people in for the content so you have attention to deliver your message. And now we've gone into an era where the biggest mass-made communication medium known to man, the internet, wasn't made by advertisers and marketers. It was made by a bunch of nerds. Um, in the military, and then it became commercial in the 90s. 
and we're having trouble gaining control of this system because attention is highly fragmented and people are very impatient. We're very impatient when it comes to our mobile phones. We want things immediately. And back in Don Draper days, it was unheard of that people blocked your ads. They couldn't. You had to watch that 30-second commercial. You had to watch that 30-second jingle. You didn't have a choice. You could turn the TV off. You could block your eyes. You could shut your ears, but you, you couldn't. Who knows who this is? No? Nobody? Seth Godin. So oh, oh, you, you can get access to these slides. Actually, I've already written a blog with this whole presentation. It's on my blog. I posted it this morning. But Seth Godin, so this is the oracle of direct marketing. You should follow him. If you want to get into marketing, follow Seth Godin. He's written 19 books. The first book you should read is The Purple Cow. It's a book every marketer should read. It's how to market yourself in a noisy environment, how to be remarkable, and how to reach people that care and let them promote your products for you instead of trying to meet the masses and 99% of the people don't care and can't even buy your product. So it's a great book to read, The Purple Cow. Go to my blog, it's all, it's all there. So you see, now people are empowered because now we have ad blockers. Who here has an ad blocker installed? Yeah, just about every one of you and you're getting into marketing. So this is really relevant for you guys. You see, because we can now, we have ad blockers, we can block ads. But the thing is, we don't, we know that a lot of the content we go out to consume on the internet is ad supported. It's not about blocking all ads, it's about blocking the bad ads. So the ad blockers are quite dumb up till now, but Google, for example, just launched an ad blocker last week. An ad filter, they call it, but it's an ad blocker. And uh, it's built into Chrome by default. And it puts pressure on advertisers and on publishers to make sure that they're only showing the good ads and not the bad ones that are impeding our experience, slowing things down, and just detracting from the whole experience when you're trying to consume content. This is a, a, a graph from Mary Meeker's report in 2017, summer of 2017. It comes out every year. It's a good report to look out for. The green line is mobile. This uh, beginning of 2017, yeah, because this was six months before the report was done. Oh, sorry, the end of 2016, there were 400 million mobile ad blockers installed on mobile and over 200 million on desktop. I think about 650 million in total. That's like one and a half years ago almost. So the, and you can see the, the, the steepness of these lines. So this is, trend is not about to stop. People are installing ad blockers at an increasing rate and Google is building an ad blocker into Chrome by default because they know that people are gonna get a whole lot of ad blockers. It may as well come from Google. At least now they know what ads you're blocking, what ads you're not blocking. So it's about going from the old to the new. This is what I have to tell my agency. Now an agency is more, it's more than just about delivering the media for a company. We're, we're having to advise companies now on how to survive, how to communicate with a consumer that's shifting to mobile. It's the digital transformation. How do I survive by reaching a consumer, reaching the right consumer? And then we have to let go of old ways of work and adopt new ways of work, new technologies, new communication methods. And often it's not about adopting the new. We all want new stuff. We can all, we can all do new stuff. That's, you know, we go on holidays to have new experiences. It's not hard to get the new. What happens, the hard thing is actually letting go of the old because it's the old 
that got us to now. All the processes and ways of work and ways of management and the culture, that's what got us to now. And often you need to let that go because the old doesn't live with the new and often they clash. You know, bad habits don't live with good habits. They repel each other. You can't be healthy and unhealthy at the same time. It's a concept that's for everything in life, but also for businesses. And this is the thing I see the most is that we have trouble adopting the new because we're too busy and, and too ingrained into old ways of work. So there's no room for the new. And right now it's about this little thing that we all carry in our pot, this mobile phone. Because if your consumer is shifting to mobile as an organization, if you're not communicating and following that consumer on mobile, then you're going to be made relevant in time because someone else is going to come in and take, on, take that relationship and, and compete with you. You know, we, we have artificial intelligence. I've got IA in there. Any, anyone can take a guess what IA is instead of AI? Intelligent assistance. It's just switched around. But intelligent assistance, digital assistance, that's what we call them. Either digital assistance, intelligent assistance. These are things that Amazon with Alexa, Google with the Google uh, Assistant. Um, we all know Siri on Apple and Cortana on Microsoft. They're building these assistants in order to help us to communicate through this little thing because it's actually the, the, the breadth and the width of digital. It's quite hard to consume everything, finding the stuff that's right for you. It's quite hard. There's a lot of stuff out there. So these are digital assistants, which I'll talk about later, are there to help us. It's a relationship we have. And when we need something, they're going to bring it to us. So it's, it's a little portal into the digital world and everything it has to offer. And this is what it's come down to now. We're in an era now where we're building our relationships through technology. It's as simple as that. People used to walk into a store and you had a conversation over the counter. Now they go to your website and you're having a relationship with them through a website or an app and you don't see the person. Now you have to figure out what they like, what they don't like. Is there love? Is there hate? Are they frustrated? Is there trust? You have to do that now via bits and bytes, via the data. You don't get to see them. It's quite hard. That's why this slide is hard on the eye because it's, it's tough trying to measure relationships through technology. And artificial intelligence, that's why it's growing so quickly because it's able to do that much better than we can. It can extract the value from data and understand the relationship. So there's a consumer. We have needs, we have wants, we have desires. And at the other end, there's a business willing to fulfill those needs, wants, and desires. And this consumer is behaving, we're behaving. We've got digital touch points all over the place, from TVs to your smartphones, to your social feeds, to your radio, to, to, to stores, to outdoor advertising. And it's about trying to tell a story that's going to get someone to slowly believe in you and come in your direction and buy from you instead of the other guy because you're not the only one promoting that hamburger or that pizza or that bag or that trip to Australia. You're not the only one. There are other people, other marketers, other businesses competing for that attention. Now you have to tell a story that fits into the worldview of that person you're trying to convince. And you're trying to do that through technology. So it's about measuring, it's about firstly understanding where is that person, how they're behaving, what touch points do they have? And then about having a coherent story that 
tells your story in a fragmented ecosystem across all these touch points. And no one's, no one's getting it right yet. It's really, really tough. It's about to get a whole lot more difficult because this invisible revolution is coming. It's the smartification of our world. It's facilitating the mobility of human experience. It's on our mobile phones moving around. It's us and this smartified ecosystem. We've got a smart screen here. We've got mobile phones in our pockets. You know, this is helping us live our lives. And our homes are being, becoming smartified from our Nest thermostat to our smart car to our smart TV. And all these things are connected to the internet. And they're all collecting data. And it's really companies understanding that in order to build a relationship through technology, I first need to put technology into people's hands so that I can understand how they're behaving. And that brings me data back so that now I can start to understand them and serve them, their needs, their wants, their desires. And the mobile phone's at the center. It's a remote control of all this stuff. And if we're not careful, it turns into this. Because another thing you need to understand is that marketers ruin everything if you let them. You see, marketers exploit wants for profit. That's what we do at our core. Marketing is turning needs into wants. For that, we tell stories. We build brand equity with our stories. You know, it doesn't cost $2 to make a can of Coke. It doesn't cost $350 to, to make a pair of glasses. Marketers create value through altering perception of what something costs. For that, they tell stories and brand stories. You know all about that. That's what's in your study. And wherever we get a chance of tapping into someone's attention and telling them a story that's going to ultimately bring money in the direction of my business, we'll do that. And if there are hundreds of marketers competing for that attention, then this starts to happen. So that's why we're getting the data protection laws coming up. You know, what, how far can marketers go with this data? It's about regulating the ecosystem so that we don't end up with something like this. Who's heard of the Internet of Things? A lot of you, good. Like a year ago, there was still uh, quite a few hands down. The Internet of Things, just a lot of things connected to the Internet. See, I, I, I made this graph, I put two axes on here. I put on the one side, innovation. This is brands building cool technology and putting it into our lives. It's the smartphones, it's the cool cars, it's the trains, it's the planes, it's all these things that we use to solve our problems. And this is innovation, trying to get us to, to, to live better lives. But on the other side, it's more about adaptation. As a consumer, how do I behave now with this thing that's in my pocket that gives me access to the whole world and everybody in it? You know, how do I stop it from taking my time and attention or even procrastinating on this thing with my social feeds and actually use my time to, my, to the best uh, value that it has. As an organization, it's about how do I follow a consumer and have a, a reasonable discussion with that person through, through a mobile phone, trying to convince them that I have the product for them. So it's organizations having to adapt their structure, their way of work, the way they use data, the way they tell stories through technology, and that's, that's adaptation. And the, it's, it's about now adapting and it's survival of the fittest and the, the ones that are agile enough to adapt quickly to this environment are the ones that thrive, not the biggest ones. You know, technology grows exponentially, but we don't as human beings, we've evolved over millions of years. Technology, because it's binary, can, it evolves over hours to weeks to months. All right, a little exercise.
Uh, two volunteers? Up, up the front? Yeah? One, two? Okay, cool. If you want to pass this around, I'll just keep one uh, with me. And then just pass these sheets around so everyone else can have a go as well. Yeah, I'll just... Who knows this exercise? Not yet? Just pass, pass it around. One sheet of paper per person. And then two volunteers up the front. Here's one for you. Here's one for you. All right. Check it out. I got a hundred bucks here. It's Romanian lei. It's worth about 25 euros. You can exchange it at any, uh, at any exchange office. So there's a, whoever gets it gets, the, gets this, this bill. The challenge is, how many times do you have to fold this piece of paper in order for the thickness of the piece of paper to reach the moon? That's a number you have to guess. But for the 100 bucks is... <coughs> If anyone can fold this piece of paper eight times, eight times, they get it. But while you're folding, think about it. Think about how many additional times you would have to fold this if you could for actually the thickness of the piece of paper to reach the moon. Okay. Only down the middle, right? Yeah, yeah, fold it as, as accurately as you can. Yep, every time in half. You can also do it like this. You can try. <laughs> One thing my father told me is nothing's impossible if you know how. <laughs> how many did you get to, yeah? You have to count it. I think you're at about six or maybe five. I think you're at five, six. All right, who's at seven already? You have to fold it in half every time, huh? Of course you could fold like duck, 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 duck. Yeah, no, no, no. I guess you could be smart about it. Seven? It's about as far as anyone can get. I don't think anyone's ever gotten to eight. My money's safe. But um, anyone can guess. So, yeah, you got to seven? Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> you got to seven? Okay, cool. So, ha anyone can take a guess how many times you'd have to follow to get to the moon? 25. Any others? 42? Yeah. You've heard this one before, huh? Well, yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? 42. 42 times. You fold this thing 42 times. And you get to the moon. Let's have a look at the math. Okay, thank you. Thanks. So, at... 
four, at six, at seven times, you, you sort of run out of resources, right? You can't fold anymore. At 14 times, you get to the height of a small child. At 25 times, you cross the finish line of a marathon. At 30 times, you hit a satellite. 42 times, you get to the moon. And this is what it looks like. It's an exponential curve. But at 50 times, you reach the sun. And at 100 times, you cross the entire observable universe of 46 billion light years. 100 times. You see, that's the power of exponential growth. And that's the era we're in now with data. Because this is what data looks like. Data also grows exponentially because technologies has the ability to grow exponentially. And data is a byproduct of technology. There's structured data and there's unstructured data. Anyone know the difference? Yeah? Oh yeah, we've got a lot of data. Okay, no, Let, let's leave that question. Everyone knows. Uh, I, I, actually, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm sort of the, the layman person on this, but I reckon, you know, structured data is, struct is data that's in context. It's data that has meaning. It's data that's connected and in context, so it has meaning. Unstructured data is data that doesn't have any meaning. Would that be a fair assessment, like a layman assessment? Structured, it has meaning, it's in context. Unstructured, it's, it doesn't have any meaning because it's out of context. Yeah? I'm not sure if you would say it doesn't have any meaning. Yeah. Meaning essence. Well, as in... Uh, examples that have been used in courses for us um, would be, for example, um, information you have in your customer database, for example, are the structured data. Uh, but there could also be people talking about your company on Twitter or stuff like that. And that information might still be useful because they might be issuing whatever kind of information on your company that you might actually want. Yeah, okay, I can see your point. So yeah. Could be meaning in it. So a, a date of birth or maybe a location might have meaning to the location, but you have no idea in what context it's in. Yeah. Maybe then in structures, it's just like structured data just ready for analysis. For instance, regression, while unstructured data could be very relevant, like let's say a video or a discussion, but it's not ready for, for analysis or ready for use um, to make graphs. For okay, so you reckon it's ready for analysis, ready for... Yeah, the thing is, like, I think the, the core thing is that unstructured data needs structuring to, to be... Uh, so now you're assuming that humans are going to be doing the analysis, right? I, artificial intelligence could also do it, but... But then it wouldn't need to be structured to be analyzed because artificial intelligence could potentially go from unstructured data and, and, and find a pattern, for example. Yeah, that, that could be indeed. That's, that's true. Yeah. And then I think the artificial intelligence would make its own structure for analyzing the data. So yeah. Because otherwise you also need a complete new math and statistics to analyze everything. Yeah, but what if it analyzes through a model and not through structuring it? Would that also be structuring it if it applies a model onto the data? Yeah. Cool, cool. No, good. I'm talking to some data scientists. So, you see, just like we ran out of resources, this is also what's going to happen until they solve this problem too. But right now, it's not solved yet. Storage of data is actually quite an expensive thing. And um, you can see right down here is how much data we're going to be storing up until 2025. By 2025, 160 zettabytes of data. A zettabyte is a one with 21 zeros behind it. Now, this is probably like finger in the wind, but it's growing exponentially. But what's going to happen is that with marketing, we're going to have to assimilate structure and assimilate and, and draw insights out of our data in real time because we're not going to have the luxury 
to store all this stuff forever. So that's why real-time data-driven marketing is going to become more important, at least for the next decade or so until we start to figure out how to store this stuff efficiently and cheaply. What happens if, if you run out of storage? Like, does then, is it Netflix as a subscription anymore? No, you companies have to make choices. They have to make choices. They say, well, we can keep this stuff for three weeks and then we have to get rid of it. Okay. So you have to make choices because ultimately it, it becomes too expensive to store everything. So it's about, so what data do I need? What data should I simulate? And, um, and, and often now with the Googles and the Facebooks, we're trying to do that in real time and stick it straight into dashboards and make it you know, relevant and not keeping all of the raw data because that's, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's not, not efficient. So let's, let's ask the question, what is data at its essence? What is data? Bits and bytes, yeah, I guess so. But I'll ask the question again, looking at it from a different lens. What is data? Information. Information. Anything else? If I ask the question again, what is data? Bits and bytes. It's information. But what? What? It's information about what? Someone. Someone. Like a trail. A trail. Yeah, so like I just, I'm just walking this direction and something's tracking my location. Something's recording my voice. So I say that data is actually behavior. Behavior. It's either human behavior or machine behavior. It's how machines move around, software communicating with each other. It's behavior of the software, it's behavior of the devices of the machines, or it's a behavior. A lot of the data we use for, as businesses is human behavior. So I say data is a conduit into human behavior. It's a proxy into human behavior. It's how we're, we're actually interacting with, with technology. We try to measure that from a click to a view, to a swipe, to a sale. So here's a bit of data. Anyone guess what this data is? No, it was higher, uh, higher in the early parts of the year. There's a trend here every Monday. Summer holidays, it goes up and then down in the autumn. Very long Christmas. Ready? <laughs> it's uh, status updates. On Facebook. <laughs> yeah, and spring break. It says breakup. I don't know. I don't know if it's breakup. I think this is actually literally a status update. So it can also mean you're going into a relationship or you're coming out of it. But I guess when you're going into a relationship, there's a likelihood that you're going out of a relationship unless you were single in the first place. So it's a it's a slide we often use to. But look, almost nothing on Christmas because that's a day where you don't do this sort of stuff, right? All right. So when you think about it, the data we have, the bits and bytes, it's something that's happened in the past. You can have data about the future. Then, then it becomes this because we use data in order to predict an event in the future. 
So data is about the past, but you, you're data scientists. Uh, this is sort of a layman's presentation. I'm going to go a little bit quicker here because you know this sort of stuff. So really, technologies, this thing called the internet, connects everything. It's hyper-connected, and it's becoming this global brain. We're all sort of connected in one way or another. We're, we're just a click away from each other. And, um, and really what it's about now, it's about using people's behavior, the personal data, the data we give to the system in order to figure out an ad that I can serve you at some time in the future. An ad that's going to be relevant for you, that's going to address a need, that's going to address a want, that's going to address a desire. And I'm going to figure out what that ad's going to be by trying to understand who you are and what you're doing and what you like and what your history was. And so I'm going to try and collect data on you in order to try and figure that out. So let's look a little video. Has anyone seen this one on Target and how they use big data in order to predict the likelihood of a few things? Okay, good. So we'll watch it. It's like it's three minutes or so. But um, so this is a great example. And, and we're doing this with a few brands also in the Netherlands, but we don't have a cool video like this. Did you know that by studying shoppers' habits, companies can predict what you want to buy? And sometimes, that's a problem. A few years ago, for instance, a father walked into a Target store in Minnesota, clutching an advertisement. He started yelling at the manager. Did you send this to my daughter, he asked. The ad contained all these coupons for baby clothes and bottles and formula and cribs. She's still in high school and you're sending her ads for baby clothes, he screamed at the manager. Are you trying to encourage her to get pregnant? The store manager apologized and a few days later called the guy to apologize again. The father was somewhat abashed. It turns out there's been some activities in my house that I wasn't aware of, he told the manager. I had a long conversation with my daughter. She's due in August. It turns out I owe you an apology. Target had created a computer model that could figure out which shoppers were pregnant just by studying their shopping habits. Identifying pregnant women is the holy grail of retail. People with new babies are so tired that if you can get them inside your doors to buy bottles and formula, they'll end up buying everything else they need as well. And if a new parent starts shopping at Target, they'll keep coming back for years. So how did Target start marketing to parents before the baby arrived? Lots of people buy lotion, but a Target data analyst noticed that women on Target's baby registry started buying very large quantities of lotion in about their second trimester. Someone else noticed that in about their 20th week, pregnant women started loading up on vitamins. By crawling through the data, Target was able to identify about 25 different items that, when analyzed together, would allow them to predict if someone was pregnant. Target's program was so accurate that it could assign almost any regular shopper a pregnancy prediction score. But the problem with all this data, as the father in Minnesota demonstrated, is that Target couldn't let on how much they knew. After all, shoppers might get a little bit upset if they received an advertisement making it clear that Target was studying their reproductive plans. So how did Target solve this problem? They started mixing in ads for bottles and formula with other products that had nothing to do with pregnancy, like lawnmowers and wine glasses, things that they knew a pregnant woman wouldn't necessarily be interested in. As a result, the baby ads looked random, and it worked. Women started using the coupons, and Target's mom and baby sales exploded. The lesson? Habits matter. And we can either choose to shape our habits ourselves, 
or we can wait till someone else shapes them for us. So it's a book, book promotion, but you did a really good job of actually uh, making this video. So I come from media brands, traffic fuse part of media brands, and there's one division within media brands that's called marketing sciences, and this is data scientists. And we did recently a project with Google uh, that's won many awards. We won an AMA award. They featured at the Think with Google recently. Was anyone at the Think with Google 2018? It's like the yearly big Google event where they show off all of the cool stuff. And um, this is uh, using really machine learning and the Google Cloud Vision API in order to try and figure out what elements within an, an ad actually contributes to a click. And you can actually go, we don't have computers here, I thought maybe you would have had computers out, we could go to the website, but um, Media Brands Ad Vision, and it's a tool, it's open to the public, anyone can use it, and you can select your sector, from travel to retail to automotive, you can select the size of the banner, so all the standard sizes are there, the color of the banner, the logo, uh, whether you have a logo in it or not, the call to action, and also the types of content you want to put in that banner. And as you do it, uh, the CTR will get calculated for you. And this is based on a, a ton, I think, a ton of data that Google's analyzed. And it can predict basically what the CTR will be when you change any of these elements. This is now an interactive tool. If you go to this website, you can also download the report that explains exactly how they did this. A good exercise uh, to, to sort of understand what Google's doing. They consider this pretty forefront research, but when you need the next version of this thing, you need to realize is that this is going to be something that's going to be highly automated in the future, where an algorithm is going to figure out whether you need a logo or not, or wh what color the banner needs to be, depending on what goals you've given that campaign, right? So this is starting to become highly automated now, but it's already here, just in a, in a, in a manual form at the moment. We did the same thing with video. So we used uh, the Alpha One, the Google Alpha One um, AI, and the same thing with video. Analyzed a whole heap of video and tried to figure out, so what creative elements within the video actually contribute towards the viewability of that video? You know, from showing a logo, to the color, to the industry, to, to different items, to the text, and then, and then uh, we also hooked it up to the human brain to figure out what sort of parts of the human brain it stimulated. So that's something that mostly Google did. I think they did the brain stuff they did on their side, but marketing sciences did a lot of the analysis for the study. What does the video uh, thing predict actually? Like um, somebody watches a full video? Um, view through rate. View through rate. So what elements would you need to put into video for people to actually keep watching? And they studied you know, I think, I think, I think the data is still limited. I think it was like a 9,000 videos or something. And you know, with all these things, the more data you have, the more accurate it gets. So I think that the first phase showed that there's actually, um, it's quite predictable. And now they want to add data to make it more reliable. So that's the second phase of the study. And I think towards the end of this year, we should have an interactive tool that, and ultimately it's about, you know, people shove a whole heap of things in there and a video will come out with whatever you want that video to do. But I think that's a few years away still. So now we've talked a lot about data, what you can do with data. Data is a conduit into human behavior. 
So through data, you can start to understand people, and then you bring that data back in order to understand, so who needs to get any piece of my message on any device at any time, in what context, right? So we use data in order to deliver the advertising and the messages. It doesn't have to be in the form of an ad. It can also be in the form of a content or a message. Now we're gonna move more into the technology. So what are the technologies that are actually modifying how we behave as human beings? And really it's going towards, it's not sure how it's gonna go yet, but there's a lot of signs saying that the big companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, Alibabas, are building now digital assistants, also Samsungs with Bixby, are building digital assistants in order to bring all this together in order for you to have one touch point where you can ask that question and it will know if you need to plan an agenda item, if you need to add to a shopping list, if you need to book an Uber, if you need to you know, access some information, it will know. And these are the, the assistants. And the Marimika report last year had some data in there that by 2020, 50% of all search will be voice commanded search. Right now we're at about 20% on mobile. And, but that, no, sorry, that was about a year ago. So it's probably more than that. And that's because as human beings, that's how we communicate. You see, reading and writing is only something quite recent. It's only the last few hundred years that we've been reading and writing. Actually, up until 100 years ago, most people still didn't read. So it's actually quite recent in human history that we've been reading and writing. And speech and listening are more natural ways. It's just that technology has been quite dumb up until now. And as the technology gets smarter, and these assistants are meant to smartify the devices that we have, as we start to behave with these things, they're going to get more and more data, they're going to become smarter, but it also requires us to trust them. It's a relationship that we have. Who are you going to trust with your data? And a relationship is two ways. For this to be able to help me, I need to give to it. If I don't give it my data and block away, it's not going to be able to help me. Siri, Cortana, Alexa, and the Google Assistant. The Google didn't give its assistant a name because it understands that we can only have so many relationships, 150 actually, 150 meaningful relationships. It's called the Dunbar number. Above 150, things start to break down. The relationships aren't meaningful anymore. So we go for quantity over quality. And that's what's happening now with Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. We have the ability to build thousands of relationships, but we notice that the more we have, the less each individual relationship is being nurtured. And actually, the less we give to our really important relationships offline, our parents, our friends, our family. So Google understands that. And you have a relationship with Google now, so it's a Google Assistant. It's all based on trust. The other ones have given them female names. It's also interesting. Silicon Valley developers, all male, almost all male, giving them female names. And also, you know, us being brought to this earth by females. Do we trust them more? Is it a trust thing? We trust females more than we trust males. So right now it looks like this. We're in control. Who are we? You know, we all know what this looks like. Google's been pushing this microphone button very hard the last few years, pushing us into conversations so we can start to understand us through voice. But soon, it's going to look like this. Or this, Amazon Echo. 
very popular in the United States. Well, this, the dash wand, sticks on your fridge. You can order stuff from it. It's from Amazon. Or this, the dot, the Echo Dot, beside your bed. You can have it do your alarm for you. You can cast music to it. You can ask it questions. You can check your agenda the next day. It'll do whatever you need it to do. You know, you'll be ordering your coffee from your favorite restaurant through a conversation. You'll be on the go ordering your favorite food through a conversation. You'll be in a taxi trying to order your next hotel or Uber or Airbnb. Now we do this stuff already, checking into KLM, booking, checking into, boarding your flight via Messenger. Who's done that? Who's actually used Messenger or WhatsApp to actually uh, check into or board a flight? Not, yeah, you're still doing email. So yeah, try it next time. Yeah, it'll, it'll update you if there's a delay. It also shows you the day, so you have to pick up your bags and everything. Yeah. You can also ask it questions about if you have to leave the country. Yeah. You can ask it the, the, the weather location, so you don't have to go to Google anymore. You just have a conversation with KLM, and it's becoming smarter and smarter. The first version was still a person. You know, a couple of years ago, I was asking questions, and, and 20 minutes later, you get an answer. You know there's a person behind it. But now it's, they're, they're testing it. it KLM's all about testing now. And you're getting more and more into a conversation. It's one touch point, direct, one-to-one -one communication with the consumer. You can help them. But they're very sensible about how they use this stuff because as soon as you have a one-to-one -one contact with the consumer, you need to use that really responsibly because if you spam that channel, bam, you're out really quickly. You know, we're really good at blocking those spam chats. So you need to be really careful and make sure that you're only making the meaningful connections, helping the consumer when they need you the most. And then you go, thank you, KLM. You know, we'll be pulling in an Uber while we're in a conversation. So here's what Google is building. So the Google Assistant, building a Google for every person on the planet. When we started, we made this for everyone so that everyone could find anything they need among the millions of bazillions of things in the world. Today, it seems like sometimes it's easy to feel like you need a little help with the stuff just in your own world. Your photos, phone, videos, calendars, messages, friends, trips, reservations, and so on and so on. Wouldn't it be nice if you had some help with all that? Wouldn't it be nice if you had a Google for your world? That's why we're building the Google Assistant. Hi, Amy, how can I help? You just ask it what you need. Okay, Google, what do I have to do today? And your assistant understands and helps you out. You can even carry on a conversation with it. How long will it take to get to downtown Chicago from home? Here you go. What restaurants are there? Book a table at Cortino Restaurant. Sure. And the assistant is always there for you. So if you're on the road, you can ask it where to fill up. And if you're at home, you can ask it to play some music. Or if you're in a chat with a friend, it can show you what's playing tonight. It's like your own personal Google. Naturally, anything you share with it is safe and secure. And the more you use your Google Assistant, the more useful it becomes. Remember my bike combo is 326. Got it. And soon, you'll be able to access it from all sorts of places. So it will be everywhere you are. We made this for everyone. And today, we're making this just for you. Hi, how can I help? Meet your Google Assistant.
So can you see everything sort of coming together? The more you use it, the more it's going to be able to help you. Everything you give it, it's going to be safe and secure. Because if it's not, then you pull out, you know? It's like in a normal relationship. If you go and tell someone a secret and they start to scream it out to other people on the street, then you're going to stop telling them secrets. Any questions? Until now, and then we'll just take a bit of a break. And then we've got a, and then we'll get into meaningful connections and some Amazon stuff. No, no questions? Okay, cool. So now we get to meaningful connections. And, um, and the second half of the presentation is going to be more about personalization experience. And we're just going to have a look at a couple of examples, Amazon being the main one and a couple of other brands. So meaningful connections, really it's about meaningful relationships, right? The relationships we seek. We tend to get rid of people that don't, we don't want in our lives, people that don't give any meaning to us, that don't help us in any way, or they're just leeching from us. We get rid of those and we make friends. Family is core and then we make friends, people that can help us, people that we can help. These are the meaningful relationships that we have. And I've translated this now to a digital context, it's meaningful connections. Because as we get more and more hyper-connected as a society, we're going to be seeking out the meaningful connections. Who's been following what Facebook's been doing with meaningful social interactions? Have you read up on some of the things that Mark Zuckerberg has done with the new mission, vision statement? So it used to be connecting the world and now it's bringing the world closer together. Yeah, why do you think they changed that? Yeah? Issues with, uh, with fake news and, and the elections, I think they played a major role in it. And Mark Zuckerberg uh, found something has to change in Facebook itself. Also, they say that um, it's normal by family and friends, but I think they just do it so that people pay for ads because it will become harder to find, to get in touch with family. Yeah. So if you want, I. Um uh, recent, two week, three weeks ago, I gave a keynote at the Best Social. It's a social media event, and it was about meaningful connections, but then with a with a lead into all of the stuff that that Facebook has been doing recently. So that's actually on my YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, but he didn't use the word connection anymore because they don't want to be they don't want to be responsible for the connection. So it's bringing the world closer together. They're giving us the ability to come closer together, but it's up to us who we connect with, right? Because as soon as you're responsible for the connection, that's where you're responsible for being a media agency and connecting people with information that's gonna modify their worldviews, potentially cause a war or an election to go wrong. They don't wanna be responsible for the connection, so that's why they've renamed it Meaningful Interactions and Social Interactions. Um, so Meaningful Connections, it's on the one side, it's how we use it. That's how we behave. And on the other side, it's how the platforms use it. So the platforms are responsible for the security. The World Wide Web are linked devices that generate data. The whole thing in one sentence. Why IoT? Because there's just a lot of devices connected to the internet. Why IOE? Because that's when we're perpetually connected to it as human beings, the internet of everything. And why big data? Because there's a lot of data. When you can connect it in meaningful ways, you can draw insights that helps you make decisions. 
helps companies make decisions, companies like Google. And then they can build relationships with us through data, through big data. And you build a relationship. A relationship is personal by definition, right? To build a relationship, you have, you have to know, understand what the other person needs, what they want. And so they use data to understand what we need, what we want, our needs and wants. Then they build experiences, they empower us with technology that drive value in our lives, and ultimately they, this needs to help us live happier, healthier, more productive lives for it to be sustainable. Maybe even more prosperous lives for people that have monetary value as a value driver, money, making money for a business, for example. Personalization, it's about addressing needs and wants. We all have our basic needs and we all have wants. Now I say marketing is turning needs into wants. Everyone has needs. Marketers make wants from them. Where it often goes wrong is where we start marketing to wants where there's no need in the first place. That's the sort of time we're getting into now, all these shiny objects that we, we all want because someone told me I, want, I wanted this, but actually it ends up in the drawer and you never touch it again collects dust and then you put it on eBay. So Google, they understood that information defines who we are, defines our worldview from the day we're born, maybe even before when we're listening, we're feeling, to the day we die, it defines who we are. It's very important. And we have sensors to measure that information in our environment from sight to touch to speech to hearing. This is uh, how we measure data as human beings. And all this data that we bring in through our senses goes into our brain, which becomes memory. And then we have a brain that allows us to process all of that, that helps me make decisions. I can see you, I'm presenting now. I'm feeling the air, I'm speaking. If someone was to yell out a question, I'd stop and I'd ask something. If there was a fire to erupt or some smoke, I'd change my behavior. So my environment is actually dictating how I'm behaving. Exactly the same way an algorithm would behave with data that it's measuring. So Google understood that information is important for us, so what did they do? They collected and organized the world's information and made it universally accessible and useful. That's their mission statement. They put a search bar up, they put the information, the world's information behind it, and we went there and we told them what we wanted. That's the holy grail of marketing. Just ask what people want. And in that moment, they can deliver meaningful advertising because they understand your intent. They understand exactly what you want at that moment. That's how they became so successful. Personalization, they use data to understand how, if I ask the right question, if I ask a question, how are they gonna give me the right answer? Now, the only way to give you the right answer is to understand what you want, what you need, who are you? What's the right answer for you? And that was that Google Assistant video, a Google for every person on the planet. Because the more you behave with Google, the more you behave with a Google Assistant, the more they're gonna understand you, exactly who you are, just like your mom and dad, brother, friends do. And then they can be a lot more meaningful for you, answer the questions that are relevant for you. The next step is experience. So experience is about earning people's attention. We're in an attention economy now, right? Attention is the asset. Who follows that? Gary Vaynerchuk, for example. No? What? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> He's a badass. Um, yeah, Gary Vaynerchuk. If you want, uh, just connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll, I'll send you in the right direction, but he's pretty hardcore. But he's the, he's the biggest social entrepreneur on the planet now. He's, he's crazy. He's nuts. You'll see if you ever follow him. 
but experience. It's about earning attention because when you're part of an experience, you give your attention, right? Think of Google Maps, for example. So Google build an app that allows you to get from A to B, right? We all use it, right? Google Maps, it's brilliant. But Google, they, they, they've basically got the world's information organized and useful in this map system. They've, they've basically photographed everything. And you tell them, I need to go here. But the only way they can help you is if, if you give them your location. Because otherwise they can't plot out a path towards that. So it's a relationship you're in. You know, I'll trust that Google will get me there cheaply, efficiently, on time. They'll even warn me if I need to take a different route. I trust Google for that. But for that, I need to give them my location because Google Maps doesn't work without location. And it's an experience you're in. You trust that Google gets you there. It's a relationship. And it's highly empowering. You don't have to reach for the Refidex anymore. Google Maps is just one example of how this technology is highly empowering. Most of these technologies are just saving you time. If you think your iPhone, firstly, if it's black, it's a reflection of yourself. That's one thing. So it's you. It's an expression of yourself. That's a Think Different campaign. It makes you better, right? It helps you live your life. Secondly, you're in control of what goes on this phone. It's you putting these apps on here. It's your choice. Thirdly, all of these apps are solving a problem for you, from accessing information, to connecting with friends, to getting from A to B, to being able to overnight somewhere, to booking a hotel, to booking a flight. All these things are solving a problem for you. It's a behavioral space. You behave on it, and you're in control. That's one of the pillars of happiness, control. And we find happiness and joy by actually choosing the problems that we solve. Not solving problems for other people or not having problems imposed upon us to solve for other people, but actually choosing the problems that we would like to solve. That's when we're empowered and that's when we're happy. It's like your study now. If you choose to do this study, you're going to enjoy it. But if it's imposed upon you against your will, then you're going to resist it as much as you can. Ultimately, it needs to drive value in your life. Now, value is highly subjective, right? This is now more about managing expectations. What's valuable for one person is not valuable for another. So as a company, you need to ask yourself, so what does my customer need from me? What's, what's the value proposition? Is it trust? Is it security? Is it price? Is it experience? Is it speed? What is it? What, what do they expect from me? And how can I deliver on those expectations. And ultimately, it's about making a happier customer. We all talk about customer happiness. You know, Amazon's obsessed about customer happiness. They say customer delight, same thing. Zappos, delivering happiness. One of the most successful companies, re online retailers, the first ones to sell shoes online when people said, you don't, no one's gonna buy shoes online. You have to try shoes on. And yet, they did it. Because they did it by delighting the customer. Under promise, over deliver. That's how you make people happy. And marketers often over promise and under deliver. Because we're, we're, we've been tasked to actually generate more sales. And so we're going to over promise things so that people are going to over buy. So we get a good tick and we grow the business, but eventually the customer is disappointed because what a marketer sold them didn't actually live up to their expectations. So this is about managing expectations. 
how do I over, um, under promise, over deliver? And people are happy. So with Zappos, it's about flowers and a box of chocolates with those shoes. And guess where you're buying your next shoes? At Zappos. <coughs> Look at Amazon, for example. So hijacking relationships, the topic of last year. So Amazon understands this. They understand that through technology, I can have a relationship with somebody. So they develop the price checker app. You put on your phone. You have an Amazon Prime account. So you already have a relationship with Amazon. You walk into the bookstore where you used to buy that book. But now you don't buy the book off the shelf. No, no, you'll grab the book, read a little bit, scan the barcode, uh, dear Amazon, you have it for half price. You'll click the button and it's waiting for you when you get home. See, Amazon's hijacked the relationship you used to have with that bookstore. They've given technology that's highly personalized because they understand what you want. They'll recommend similar books to you, books that you would never normally find. But Amazon knows that these are the books for you because they understand you through your buying behavior. They build an experience from Amazon Prime, uh, one-click checkout. That's a pattern from Amazon. Just one click and you buy it. That's a pattern they have. And this, this smooth app that you are in control of, you put on your home screen. It empowers you, efficiency, price, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it drives value for you, efficiency, price. And then you start to be in a better relationship with Amazon than you were with that bookstore. Airbnb, Uber, these are companies that build a platform, solve a problem for you, whether it's getting from A to B or overnighting somewhere. They let you behave on it, and through the data, they service you, and they get out of the way. These are platforms, platforms. We're in a platform economy now, platforms, because platforms connect multi-sided supply and demand systems. And through the data, platforms actually, the key to platforms is that they promote the flow of information. You see, data's, you see, currency. Currency is actually worth nothing unless it moves, unless it's exchange hands, supply and demand. Gold is worth nothing unless it moves. Same with data. It, data isn't worth anything if it's sitting in a silo somewhere and nobody uses it. As soon as it gets used, that's when it has value. Same thing with cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. The movement, the faster things move, the more value they have. So platforms, they understood this. The more we can have data move and exchange hands and the more people can get hold of it, the more valuable it gets. And Tesla, it's not about the car. It's a, Tesla's an operating system. The car is a physical manifestation of the experience. And every step of the way, that car, you're there with Elon Musk who's trying to change the world and, 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 and get us to go to other planets and all that sort of stuff. The stories that you relive when you're in that car. And every morning it's a new car because it gets updated every night. Alibaba, the first company, the biggest platform in the world, the first company that did a billion sales in an hour. A billion dollars in sales in one hour. 24 billion in 24 hours. A new record. Spotify, we talked about. Highly personalized Spotify. It knows what music you want. It's an experience. We have it in our ears. We're glued to it. It's highly empowering. We have access to 40 million songs. Drives value in our life. Facebook. Facebook has have some serious thinking to do. They're going to have a really tough year this year. They're now connecting 2 billion people worldwide. And they're understanding the power of being able to connect a third of the world's population. You know, hyper-connection. Because their model is actually 
a pleasure trap. It's bringing us in, taking our time, taking our attention, because the more we give to them, the more money they earn through advertising. It's monetizing our eyeballs, taking our time and attention. But our time is our most valuable asset. And our attention, the more, you know, I say in order to, the, the first thing in order to move in a direction for you is to start controlling your own attention instead of having someone else control it for you. And when you think about these feeds, it's someone else controlling your attention, controlling the information that you get. It's an algorithm. So these are things we have to be really conscious about now, is um, our time, because marketers now have technology, and because we're in a hyper-connected world, they have the ability to reach us, left, right, and center. And so we have to make choices now on what we're gonna let in and what we're gonna let out. So the good marketers are the marketers that are telling us the right stories, the things that are personal for me, the things that help me live my life and have the experiences I wanna have, the things that empower me to live my life, solve my problems, the things that are driving value for me, what I expect the value to be. And that's how this thing becomes sustainable. So that's Meaningful Connections. I really built it on the back end of one question. Why would a company go online? I literally asked her like a trainee at Traffic For You and she couldn't answer me. And I went, what? And you know, you go on, a company would go online in order to connect with more people, to build more relationships, to pull more people into the business. Because otherwise you'd be dependent on people walking past your store, walking into your store. And that's why we invented advertising to try and reach more people from billboards to TVs, to, and now the internet. Now you, ha you can reach seven billion people, but most of them don't care. So how do you reach the people that care? And you, you can do that through understanding people through data. Any questions on Meaningful Connections? You can read up on it, it's all over the place. I keep blogging about it. So the power of experience. Personalization, it's clear, you know? You want to be in a relationship where the other person or the other company or the other thing understands what you need, what you want, what you desire, right? If it has no clue, then it doesn't, doesn't have any meaning. It's not a meaningful connection. But Amazon's um, crazy about experience because when you don't control the experience, you're not in control of the relationship. Then you're um, in the hands of other companies that can destroy that experience. So they're starting to get they, understand, they started as a pure play, it's a website you go to, and now they're trying to infiltrate our physical world because they understand that the experience of the future is where the physical and the digital merge together. That's the future of experiences, where you don't actually notice the difference. Just like we've got here, right? This used to be a chalkboard. I used to have to write here. And now we've got access to the world. So Amazon, Amazon bookstores. So there's 13 operational bookstores in the U.S. now. They've got plans to build 400 of them in the U.S. And these are bookstores that resemble more libraries. You walk in, you pick out a book, Amazon will help you. You sit down, you have a coffee, you have a read, and when you're ready, you just walk out. It's automatically uh, charged to your Amazon Prime account. So you can experience the book, you can talk to other people. The Amazon Go stores, which you saw last week. So these are stores that help you consume on the go. Amazon helps you consume on the go. There are no lines. There are no checkouts. It's highly efficient. You walk in, you take what you want, and you walk out. That's it. You can't shoplift anymore until someone steals your identity. 
So identity theft is going to be a big thing of the future. Let's have a look at Amazon Go stores. This is what they look like in a picture. You can see you can scan your phone here. You need Amazon Prime or you don't get in. So that's already locking you into the relationship. There's one store now in, in Seattle and they've got plans to launch this technology everywhere. And as you'll see, they just bought Whole Foods. So sometime in the future, we can expect this technology to be in there as well. Four years ago, we started to wonder, what would shopping look like if you could walk into a store, grab what you want, and just go? What if we could weave the most advanced machine learning, computer vision, and AI into the very fabric of a store so you never have to wait in line? No lines, no checkouts, no registers. Welcome to Amazon Go. Use the Amazon Go app to enter. Then put away your phone and start shopping. It's really that simple. Take whatever you like. Anything you pick up is automatically added to your virtual cart. If you change your mind about that cupcake, just put it back. Our technology will update your virtual cart automatically. So how does it work? We used computer vision, deep learning algorithms, and sensor fusion, much like you'd find in self-driving cars. We call it Just Walk Out Technology. Once you've got everything you want, you can just go. When you leave, our Just Walk Out technology adds up your virtual cart and charges your Amazon account. Your receipt is sent straight to the app, and you can keep going. Amazon Go. No lines, no checkout. No, seriously. So you can see that when Amazon starts doing this, then they have access to the communities that we live in, right? The way we live, the way we move, the, way, the things we buy offline normally, the things we wouldn't buy on an e-commerce store. You know, a sandwich. I don't know. <coughs> yeah. I'm actually wondering, how does that work with alcohol and people that use 31? I don't think they sell alcohol yet. I saw beer in there. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's interesting. They have computer, they have like the facial recognition. So maybe, I, I don't know, can you sign up for Amazon if you're under? Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know, they've probably, uh, maybe some alarm goes off. <laughs> so identity, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a whole heap of hurdles and problems that they'll have to get through. Right now, it's only one store, and it was for Amazon employees only up until very recently. I think just a couple of months ago, they, um, they opened it up to, to new Prime users, rolling it out really slowly. And the thing is, with these, te with these platforms, with these technologies, is it's test and learn, iterate and adapt and, and build from there. They just keep learning as they go. They're not assuming that this is going to catch on. They just keep going. Until and if it keeps catching on, then they just keep going. If it fails, you know, Amazon tried to launch a phone, it failed, they kicked it out. So they just keep trying. 2016, now they, they launched their Prime Air, 
uh, Amazon Prime Air. So that's like uh, 32 jumbo jets now flying worldwide. And the, the idea is to have very quickly 100 um, jumbo jets, I think about 15,000 employees, 200 flights a day. So shipping things. So this is competing with their partners, U UPS and, and FedEx. Whole Foods, they bought Whole Foods recently, end of last year, for, um, I forget the amount, but it's 473, yeah, 13.4 billion, I think. Um, 473 stores across the US and the UK. But these are things, these are stores that people normally shop in. So now they're understanding how you're behaving at a ground level. Are you buying those nappies that you never thought about buying on Amazon, but now they see that you're buying them at Whole Foods and they know exactly what you need next month and the month after and the month after because they know exactly what size nappies you're buying. And now they can start to retarget with advertising online. So it's about connecting the online and the offline. It's all a data play. It's all about understanding human behavior, how we're behaving. And if they can't put technology in their hands, then they just buy up our ecosystems, which is what's happening here. And now they're delivering all over the place. They want to control the experience right up until the doorstep when you get handed over those bags, controlling the full experience and not relying on partners that are, that are potentially going to break an Amazon experience. And that's something a lot of companies need to understand now is how can I complete the experience and, and have control over that whole thing or work with a partner that I, I trust that's going to keep the integrity of that experience. Um, drones. So they're experimenting a lot with drones, how to get things to us quicker, more efficiently. And these drones, they're not going to fly out from a, a central Amazon factory. No, no, Amazon's building now blimps in the air. They, they, Amazon knows exactly how much is going to sell at any given time, at any given place. They have enough data on that. They know exactly how many, um, I don't know, uh, devices of a particular thing are going to sell in Amsterdam on one given day. And so if they know that, then they can just store it up above our heads. And they've released the patents, you can go and read them, they, you can Google them, but literally it's blimps up above major cities with drones delivering these things down in, in a matter of minutes. I don't know how long it's gonna take, who knows? But it gives you an idea of how Amazon is thinking. And it gives you, this is a think different thing. So how do I, if people, if it's not for all items, I don't think they're gonna ship down a bed or something like that, but things like we need really quickly, like toilet paper, for example, you're out of toilet paper, Amazon, and before you can even have a chance to get off the toilet, it's, it's there. <laughs> I don't know, you gotta be creative with these things. So, all right, that was Amazon. Who's heard of Maybelline and what they're doing with the makeup genie? Yeah? Anyone use it? No. Oh, no one used the Makeup Genie? Well, it'll be only girls, I think. But. <laughs> <laughs> so another really, really cutting-edge brand. And here, this is a really nice example because now they understand exactly how you're shopping, exactly what your preferences are, and they can give you recommendations. Different shades, different colors, different products. And it's really important because that date might make or break your life or your career if it's a job interview and it's really important it's solving a critical problem for you
So when you're using this stuff, you're logged in, of course, and they know exactly how you're interacting with the different products. And it's similar to Snapchat, it shows you the end result. And it's free, you can download it. Probably tracks your location, of course, so it knows how to deliver advertising to you. So this is now about enriching the physical experience with the digital experience. So augmented reality, virtual reality, this is a nice application of how to use augmented reality. So yeah, it's about really understanding how, how people shop, right? And then when they start behaving through this technology, now you can profile, have a profile on them, you know exactly what they've purchased in the past. You have a relationship with them. Now that person trusts that you're gonna make recommendations and, and give the right shades, the right colors, experience new things, maybe make recommendations based on what other people have used, maybe even what other similar people have used, similar to what Amazon's doing. This is an example from Pepsi Max. These shelters are probably being built. This was about a year ago, and I think it was still a video at that stage. But I think the idea is to try and make one of these shelters. But I think it's very much in media phase. But this is now how to use yeah, a mix of virtual, probably more augmented reality here to really inspire people and, and create emotion and, um, and have people sort of um, interact with it. Anyone seen this before?
I'm telling you, this is how it works, man. There's a little camera right here. It's just another way to have um, outdoor advertising, you know, instead of just a static billboard, you can make an experience. And then what happens is that you stir up emotions and people start to, to share it on Facebook and share it on YouTube and, and, and tell friends and chat and, and it goes viral because it's something remarkable. And that's what you get out of the purple cow as well. How can you make something remarkable that people can notice, share with their friends and family and spread the word for you? instead of having to use media every time in a linear fashion to try and amplify a message, make something remarkable that amplifies exponentially. Okay, so one last parting message. You know, this technology's great. It's Steve Jobs walking out on, the, on stage. It's magical, presents us the iPhone, and we all want one. And then technology in a hyper-connected world becomes manic. It's when it's pinging us from every which way because marketers are able to do that. When you have technology, people can reach you with this thing called the internet. It's pinging us from every which way. It's taking our time. It's taking our attention from the more important things in life. And after this manic phase, it goes into toxic. It's when we're sitting around the dinner table with family and friends and we're all staring at our screens, forgetting the important relationships right in front of us. It's when technology's automating out of a job because it's much more efficient at working with data than we can. So technology is wonderful, but we have to use it wisely. So to finish it off, the future belongs to those who hear it coming, but it's owned briefly by those who build it. Thank you. Thanks. Any questions? Of, of a lot of data and uh, artificial intelligence and a lot of cool things um, big like uh, internet companies are doing but is there also a place for more like smaller um, firms let's say like local firms or uh, who also want to compete on the internet like because i can imagine if you don't have these scientists who, who build all these stuff and, and all these intelligence then maybe in like 30 years it's all going to be Amazon, for instance, uh, to sell things. I don't know, like, is, yeah. It, 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 are the other companies also able to survive then in that, that era? If you get the question. Yeah, I understand it, yeah. yeah. I think at the end of the day, you know, we've been human beings for a long time. Technology is something quite recent, last few hundred years. You know, from the agrarian age, we use tools. It goes back 12,000 years to the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago where we started to build factories and build robots to try and increase production to only like half a century ago where the cognitive era started, so computing started, and we were able to enter into an information era where information really enabled us to get more done, right? It helps us make better decisions because that's how we make decisions for information. But at the end of the day, it's the choices that you're going to make, that we're going to make, as to what we want around us, right? We don't live in the digital yet. Not yet. 
I mean, Second Life's come and gone, and there's some stories about what's going to happen in the future. But at the end of the day, most of our lives aren't digital. At the end of the day, the only thing... See, one thing that you have to realize, I was in Honinga like 20 years ago in 1997. And when I walk around this city now, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Actually, the only thing that's changed is this thing. This thing that connects us up to all this wonderful stuff, all these tools, all this information. It's all on the go. We can call each other. And, um, but that's all that's changed. The restaurants are still the same. The movies are still the same. The buses are still the same. The, the streets are still the same. The apartments are still the same. Everything's the same. So we've sort of come into this weird mentality that digital is going to change everything. But really, digital and technology is just a tool to get to make us better people do do more stuff with our time so it's the choices you're going to make you know if you want to support that local supermarket you will if you want to support that local university or local school or local cinema you will so i think right now we're in a time where there's these wonderful things that are coming to us via these screens from the netflixes to the spotify's to all this stuff but it doesn't mean that we're going to concerts less often Actually, they're filling up because artists are able to communicate through us, through Spotify, for example. You know, it doesn't mean that we're going to restaurants less often. No, we might be ordering home, but then we realize that that's only part of the experience. It's just getting food in our mouths. But really, the experience is about going out and, and going to a restaurant. And so I think that the more digital we become, the more valuable the other side will get. It's just like the grass is always greener on the other side. So I think that's a big opportunity for smaller companies now who don't want to take on this digital era, especially as we get into an era where data privacy becomes a real big issue. You know, the more I give to the system, the more it can help me. But if I'm being helped as much as I need to be, then why should I give more to the system? You know, like enough is enough, right? At some point you say, I don't need more of this. And, and so at some point you say, hey, this is enough. And this is the, what you'll see is that these phones that we have are actually good enough. And now Apple has to keep going with this iPhone X or iPhone 10. I don't know. Sales are dwindling. Sales aren't going well at all because we don't need a better phone. They're good enough for, for the moment. And, um, and that's us making those choices. I don't need to upgrade my phone for another thousand bucks. I'm okay with this one. And that's causing Apple a lot of problems. So they're having to come out with smartwatches and all these other things in order to try and create wants so that they can keep growing. Because that's ultimately what these big platforms need to do. They need to keep growing because if they don't, then they get displaced by someone else's growing. It's almost a bunch of weeds all, all trying to capture the sun. And if you don't grow faster than the other guy, then you, get, you start to, to die. So to answer your question, I think... Um, it's the choices that we're going to make. And I think that we're human. And I think that we'll make the right choices for the ecosystems that we live in. Because I'm a biologist, remember? Did I tell you that? Yeah. Oh, OK, sorry. OK. I have a PhD in medicine. So that's, that's why I came to the Netherlands to do a PhD. So I'm, I'm an ecologist. I'm a virologist. I understand the human body. I understand how viruses interact with cells, understand how bacteria interact with cells, and understand this exponential nature, understand that nothing grows forever. We call that a cancer, and it consumes, it hosts, and it dies. And I also understand that 
for something to live sustainably, we need symbiosis between the ecosystem. You know, it's give and take, it's that relationship. When something's in there that's consuming its environment, it becomes parasitic and ultimately consumes its environment and everything dies. And it's the same with technology, it's invading into our lives. And as long as it, we can live symbiotically with it, we'll use it. But when it starts to overtake us, to overtake our ecosystem, to break down the fabric of society, like Uber does sometimes, you know, breaking down literally the fabric of society, and, and then companies, and then countries kick them out. Like, they get kicked out of Italy, they get kicked out of China, they get kicked out of London now, because um, we don't need them. experience like there's a direct effect between these sort of entertaining movies and actual uprising sales once they come out or yeah so as marketers I think there's a you could tell a really sexy story through technology right just making a cool new app and all the stuff you can do with it how it solves your problem the getting from A to B or buying something more efficiently at the click of a button think of our Thais Bazaar think of our um, supermarkets trying to get stuff to your home now with saving you time, transit time, you know, skipping the supermarket lines. It's, right now, it, it allows marketers to tell really cool stories of why I should shop here instead of here, right? Why I should buy this instead of that? Why I should choose that brand instead of that brand? So as marketers, it's about building, uh, as companies, it's about building technology that's personal by nature. It allows me to personalize whatever your offerings are to me. It's an experience because technology is an experience. You give it your attention, it becomes an experience and empowers you to solve whatever problem that company is out to solve for you. And from a marketing standpoint, now it gives me a story to tell, right? Literally, that, that's, that's what it comes down to. It gives me a cool story to tell. And as marketers, we often say to companies, you know, shit, you know, you're not going to get you're not going to grow by selling shit you're not going to grow by selling crappy stuff you know people want good stuff they want the good stories behind them people don't buy what you do they buy why you do it so you need to tell them a story as to why they should invest and buy into your business and technology is one of those things a, a presentation i gave last week at katawiki you know it's not about you know we can tell a sexy story of how technology is is this allure, it's, it's, it's a shiny object and it's highly efficient and it helps us create flow over friction. That's one way to tell the story, but another way is also through the story behind products, you know, like things that are relics, things that go back in time, like Katawiki, it's all antiques, you know, from antique coins to statues to music to old platinum CDs. And people buy these things not because it's efficient, not because it's technology, the allure, it's the latest gadget, but because it brings them back to a time when they felt better, when they felt like a child or <laughs> free of, of, of all the th shit they have to deal with today. It brings back those memories and that's also valuable. And as a marketeer, you need to understand why are people buying this stuff? Why are people buying this and how can I tell them a story? Because you're not going to change their worldviews. No, we, some of you study marketing, not most of you, but some really the core of marketing. You can't change how people think, how people believe. What you need to do is understand the worldviews of people and then 
here's my product. How do I craft this product for the story to, to validate the worldview of that person? So that they, basically you need to tell them the story they already believe in. Depends. It depends what your goal is. If your goal is to have a funny experience, then maybe that's accomplished. I don't know. If your goal is to look as pretty as possible, then um, maybe that wasn't. Yeah, but it depends what your goal is. But I think for a male doing that, it's probably just a funny experience they can show their friends. But I get your point. So let's say a female does it and the, the, the app's crap. It doesn't work at all. No, that's, that's bad. That's bad for... So, so let's break it down. So let's break it down to how Maybelline would think about this or how Google or an Apple. Or, so let's break it down. So they've put technology out into our lives. You behave with it. And now it's up to them to measure through data how you're behaving with this. Are you liking it? Are you loving it? Are you not liking it? Are you getting the stuff done you need to be getting done? And how can I understand through data, is it a good experience? Is it a bad experience? And then through iteration, they're going to slowly improve it, slowly solve those bugs. And that's how Facebook builds. That's how Snapchat builds. So it's not about trying to make the perfect product. It's about making the minimum viable product, putting it out there, letting people behave with it. It'll suck at first, but some people will adopt. And as long as you've got some sort of adoption and enough data, to iterate and improve and and if you've got the right team behind it they can do it quickly enough because you're probably not the only one then maybe you'll have a chance Um, I think uh, regulation is something that we're going to experience with force in the future. I don't think we can stop it. And I think that we shouldn't. It, it won't stop because I think that's how society is built anyway. We, if you take out rules, we start to kill each other. Literally. We have wars. And, and we have governments and we have rules and we have religion to try and control all this stuff. Right? It's a, it's a map on how to live our lives, how to live with each other. So regulation and rules are part of the basic fabric of society. Take out the legal system and it's chaos. Because intrinsically by nature, we're self-motivated. So we'll kill someone else to be better off, right? When it comes to who gets that food and who gets that housing and who gets that person and all that sort of stuff. So coming back to basic human nature, we're flawed by default and we need rules in order to control us. Now, we've come... So right now we're in an era where it's the wild, wild west of data now. It used to be, you know, land. Think of the cowboy days, you know, when, when they used to shoot each other, right, when, for, for land. And then we had the, all the wars with um, the American Civil War, you know, trying to basically battling over, over land. And now it's about the data wars, so battling over who has access to your attention. Because ultimately it's your attention that's generating all of this data. The way you behave with 
the technology and the software that you choose. So it's a battle for attention, and that also needs to be regulated. Otherwise, um, in, a, in a data ecosystem, it's winner take all because especially with these digital assistants, you know, once, I think it's, it's probably uh, Alexa and the Google Assistant now, once they start to reach critical mass and start to gain enough of, your, of our behavior, you can't stop them anymore. It, it goes too quickly. There's no way you can catch up to them. So, um, so we're going to get these oligopolies forming, and that's the Googles and the Facebooks, which control now 90% of all the digital advertising spend. Now, that's not a healthy ecosystem. So it's okay for now because we've just witnessed it, but now because governments are often a few years behind, they now have to assess the situation, learn, try to make some new rules on how to regulate this. And that's where GDPR is coming in now, is it's trying to sort of slow us down a little bit. Because Moving exponentially. May it be too late to regulate it? Uh, I, don't think, I don't think it's ever too late. I, think, I, don't, I don't think it's too late. Because we're still, it's pretty simple. It's, um, you know, Facebook's probably going to have to charge. They're going to have to make a, a version that's ad-free. Something simple as that. that. That's a solution to Facebook. Just allow people to pay for it. If it's valuable enough, if it's as valuable as a Spotify account, uh, if, it is, if it doesn't cost 100 bucks a year, then why are you, doing, why are you there in the first place? You know? So, and as soon as you pay for it, there's no digital advertising, then all the algorithms go away, then it's just a linear feed again of your friends and family, the 150 people you've chosen, and off you go. And if you want to use it in the old way, you can, but then at least give the people the choice, right? So that's the things that governments are going to have to think about now, is how do I want such a thing as Facebook that's connecting people to anyone in the world and, and having them connected to, from anyone in the world and influencing how they think through for example, what we saw with the fake news. Um, these are all things that governments have to think about now. And, um, and yeah, it's going to be highly regulated, and we haven't even seen the start of it because we've got cyber warfare coming, you know, drone warfare and things like that, micro-targeting with drones that can just, you know, fly up to your head and, and launch a small capsule in your, in your brain, and they can target you via Facebook, you know? I don't know if anyone's seen the, the Slaughterbot videos. Has anyone watched Slaughter Slaughterbots? From Netflix? Autonomous um, Warfare? Oh, it's, yeah, it's on YouTube. I think it's autonomouswarfareorsomething.org. If you Google Slaughterbots, you'll see what I mean. It's pretty terrifying. So it's Black Mirror. Anyone watch Black Mirror? So it's, um, it's, it's episode um, season. Se yeah, the dogs. So that, that was the, the metalheads. So they exist already, you know, Boston Dynamics is creating those. You haven't seen that yet? I've seen the, the Netflix episode and the um, videos are here, they're already real life. So, so you know, these slaughter bots, so uh, drone, so they've already been launched, you know, Sir uh, Russia just stopped an invasion of like uh, two dozen of these drones that was launched out of Syria. Luckily, they were able to stop them, but basically, and did you see what happened with the Winter Olympics? The fireworks. It's all drones. It's all drones. What you need to do is attach a small piece of explosive and then target to facial recognition and you can take out anyone you want. Or target to your mobile phone. We all have them here.
it's possible. That's the thing. It's not that far away. So I think that probably just like, you know, we, ha we needed a Hiroshima nuclear bomb to regulate nuclear power, then we're probably going to need something like this to happen to regulate this. <coughs> so it'll be regulated. And we, we will because we'll have to. Um, it's often too late, yeah. Yeah, it's often you need to see the proof before you sort of take action. And that's one of our flaws because otherwise uh, people will reg regulate beforehand and there'll be a lot of controversy and all of why do you need to do this and all of that. And even will revolt because anything comes with, um, with um, it's, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean an invasion of our privacy because regulation will also mean that people need to be spied upon. You need, your Google searches are going to have to be tracked. Um, another, yeah, a lot of it's a lot of it's in Black Mirror. If you watch Black Mirror long enough, <coughs> you'll sort of get the gist of it. But another good place to go is to read the the Wait But Why blog. Has anyone read that? No. Oh, that's uh, that's like eye opening. So if you go to Wait But Why, it's Tim Urban. <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> so go to Wait But Why. You know, it's, it's a procrastination blog. Wait, but why? Wait, but why? It's procrastination. So he's a master procrastinator, did a TED talk and everything. But waitbutwhy.com. And the latest blog is on Neuralink. So when you read that, it basically shows what human civilization will be like 200 years from now. So read that. And then there's a series on AI, a first part and a second part. And he goes through narrow intelligence, which is a phase we're in now, to general intelligence, which is when computers become self-aware to, if they can, to um, super intelligence, which is when we become cats to the computers, <laughs> like we have cats now. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. It's probably, I don't know. It might be in our lifetime. It might be at the next lifetime. I have no idea. But it's the direction we're going into, but who knows how long it's going to take. Yeah. But read those blogs. If you, if you sort of forget or anything and you're, you're curious, just... Send me an email and I'll give you the link. I'll make sure I'll send them around afterwards. I'll probably write a blog on it soon. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> that was it for any more questions? Or? Then we have a small small thing from us as well. Cool. I, I talk like two or three times a week now, and every time I'm getting a, a bottle. So <laughs> sort of every weekend I'm getting drunk. <laughs> Anyways, oh, cool. thank you very much. Thanks. Um, this is from us. Cool, thank you. Awesome. <laughs> and, um, you can just connect with me uh, on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter is where I'm mostly. Uh, and yeah, feel free to reach out, questions. I love to chat on, you know, that's how we build our relationships now through technology.